Today is Romans 7, 7 through 14. What shall we say then? That the law is sinful? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity from the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. For we know the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We would be lost without you speaking in human language to us. And more than that, you sent Jesus Christ, who condescended to take on a human form, become a man, and become our Savior and our King, to lead us out from underneath sin and the law. We thank you for this and help us to understand his work in us and the transformation that we have in union with Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So last week, we looked at our new relationship to the law. And it was like as if we had been married poorly to the law manipulated by sin. And then it died. And we became to belong to another. I hope you, I hope that stayed with you throughout the week that you belong to Christ and He. Under the law and how that, what that looks like and what that feels like. And the reason for this is because we're exploring in this message the role of the law for Christians today. What good is the law? Do we try to live by the law today? Not for our justification, not to become a Christian, but because we are a Christian. Do we live by God's law? What does that mean for us? I'm organizing this message in four parts. The first part I'll be looking at is, number one, God's good use for his law. Number two, that some have thrown out the law of God. Number three, that some have become comfortable with the law of God. And number four, to see how the law ruins us, but how Christ is our hope. In this first section, I'm not, it's not really coming right out of this paragraph of Romans. It's kind of coming from Christian theology, the God's good use for his law. What is the role of the law in the history of salvation? Well, the law was given, not at the beginning in the creation, but when God created the people of Israel out of slavery, he, brought, he saved them out of Egypt and then he gave them the law on Mount Sinai to Moses. So it's sometimes called the law of Moses or the Torah, the law. What, what is the law 
and uh, how does it pertain to us today? Well, the law has three basic parts. There's the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral parts. The civil law is the law that was given to the Hebrews for when they came into the land of Canaan and became a nation state. And eventually became under the monarchy of David and David's sons. A Davidic king was supposed to be succeeding forever. But we know that a Davidic king did not succeed forever. The history of Israel was one of a divided kingdom and then both kingdoms petered out in failure. So the law, uh, that kind of governmental law structures, the civil law, is not valid for us today. It's instructive for the way good government should be run, but it doesn't. The, the, the actual legal code is not. Uh, it does not bear on us today. And the same is true for the ceremonial law, the re- religious patterns for what it was to worship the Lord God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, because it was all focused on. Uh, the special way Israel was supposed to behave and look toward God and to others. I mean, they had specific ways to dress, what to eat, and they had animal sacrifices. We know from the book of Hebrews that there's no more animal sacrifices. And there's no more temple, by the way. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed and there has never been sacrifices again. And we know the Lord, the reason for that is the Lord put the end to that temple because Jesus Christ, our high priest, became our once and for all sacrifice for our sins. So, Uh, The ceremonial law, which was just a shadow of the things to come, is now past tense. It had built-in obsolescence. It's not valid for today. But now the moral law. The moral law especially summed up in the Ten Commandments. Now that does not have an expiration date. It is where God defines what is good and evil. That was the problem in the beginning in Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve wanted to define good and evil for themselves. But God, in his love and mercy... Turned on the light and gave God's people, Israel, the law. This was a great gift. It was the good news of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. Because it showed them God's way. It showed them God's will. It also gave them insight into God's character to which they were to imitate. Ephesians 1 says, imitate God. And the moral law tells us how to do that. So the moral law which uh, stays into effect for us. And we know that because of the way the New Testament scripture breaks out the moral law at various places in the New Testament. John Calvin says, of this moral law, there's three practical uh, uses. One, the law of God is like a mirror. It shows us ourself in relationship to God. And when we see that, we're seeing his righteousness and our inability to be righteous. This is important for us to have. Calvin said this, this is necessary, this seeing the difference between us and God, is necessary in order that a man or a woman who is blind and intoxicated with self-love may be brought at once to know and confess his or her weakness and impurity. By the way, Calvin is very readable and, and, and uh, has very vivid language there. Blind and intoxicated with self-love? If you can't say amen, at least say ouch. Doesn't that describe where we live? So I commend John Calvin to you. Maybe he has some big books out there, but if you eat it like an elephant, one little bite at a time, I guarantee you it will benefit your life and your soul. So the first use of the law is that it reveals God's character, shows us our need for Christ, and pushes us like a schoolmaster showing us our bad grades. You absolutely need his mercy. The second use of the law is for all kinds of people, not just believers. It is to restrain evil. 
So the law and every nation's laws that imperfectly reflect the law of God have the, have the power to restrain evil in that it acts as a deterrent. If you steal, if you kill, if you murder, if you defraud, uh, if you speed, if you uh, drink and drive, those sort of things, it restrains evil just kind of like a deterrent. But it does not change the heart. Now, I try to bring this point home in parenting. I try to tell my children, when you get a consequence for dis- disobeying or sinning, I can give you a timeout, or when they were little, they got corporal punishment. Don't call DHS. They're all, like, no younger than 11. Um, and it wasn't bad. It was good to their heart. But I would tell them stuff like this at certain points. While you're having a consequence, and you're grounded, and you can't go and do what you want to do, uh, that's appropriate because of what you did. But this doesn't change your heart. I want you to know that I know this doesn't change your heart. And you need to be talking to God about how he can change your heart. So the second use of the law is that it just restrains evil. And that's a good thing, right? We wouldn't want to live in moral, moral chaos, chaos in this world affords to us today. So it's a good thing, but it doesn't change the heart. Now, the third use of the law, Calvin talks about, as something for believers in whose heart the Spirit of God already flourishes and reigns. Where the Spirit of God flourishes and reigns as a king. So those that means for those who are saved... The law of God shows us the way of life, a way of life for us that's pleasing to God. See, God didn't change his mind. He didn't, you know, it's not the God of anger and wrath in the Old Testament and the God of peace and love and and warm, fuzzy feelings in the New Testament. It's the same God. He didn't change his expectations for people, even though in and of themselves they can't reach it. But through the Spirit, we can live by the law. The moral code, especially the Ten Commandments, given in the Old Testament, is reiterated and applied in many places in the New Testament. This law of loving God is not fuzzy and subjective. It's not relative to just how we feel we should live in a life of love. It's given uh, structure. It's given guidelines. And uh, it takes the Holy Spirit to give us the power to do this, but it's not up to our figuring it out. For example, Romans 13, 8-10 says this in applying the law. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. And if we just stop right there, we would feel like we could put on our headbands and have a hippie moment and strum the guitar and sing, all we need is love. Right? But Paul continues. It's not just like that. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So this moral law tells us how to live the good life, a good moral life, and how to be blessed here and now. But it's not like living by God's uh, law uh, uh, means that he's going to... You know, strike us with a thunderbolt if we do wrong or shower rose petals on us if we do right. The good life of living according to God's law is that uh, the law is good in itself. Obedience to the law is a blessing long before it brings a blessing because we're made for this. It gives us a life of peace and, and it gives us in, through the spirit the fruit of the spirit. King David, when he said in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. Of course he needed the law to convict him of sin. But this, but 
but he saw in the law the way to please the God he loves. It wasn't a list of things he wasn't allowed to have. It was a pleasures and delights he would have by following God's wise ways for humanity. Now, so that's a, uh, the God's, God, God's good use for the law. Uh, and that's very theological and sounds rather academic. But we know we live in the real, real world where, point two, some throw out the law of God. What does this look like? In our culture today, there are many voices that say, well, we have our own new ways of life. We have our own new morality. Uh, Romans 7 verse 7 says, what shall we say? Is the law sin? And there are many voices in our culture that say, yes, taking the Bible too literally does damage to people. Taking, the, taking scripture too literally, it, we should not obey the law of God because it's, it's bad, it's full of error, it's full of patriarchy, it's just oppressive. Um, so many people say today that uh, all we need is the law of love. And that sounds really good. It makes for really good bumper stickers. Love is love. How can you be against love? I mean, that's, that's, that's a hard one to, to escape if someone lays that bumper sticker on you in conversation. How can you be against love? That's kind of like being asked, uh, have you stopped, you know, hitting your wife yet? And you say, you know, yes, that means you had been. Or if you say no, that means you hadn't stopped. It's one of those catch-22s. How can you be against love? But here's the question. Who? defines love. And for uh, the many young people in this room, especially in the wolf pew, this is for you. Because your culture is telling you, you get to decide what love is. You get to define it. Each person defines love for him or herself. I found a, a, a movement called the Born Perfect Movement. Hashtag Born Perfect. And uh, it said, very, a very great theological statement, God is love and love is God. But if that's all the definition there is, we are like lighting our own torches in the middle of a dark cave and hoping we can lead ourselves out. Because this, uh, this movement has the idea that if you believe you're a sinner, believing that you're a sinner is bad for you. It's bad for your self-esteem. It's bad for your psychological health if you believe you're a sinner. You're not made to carry all that guilt. You see how psychology has trumped the Bible's truth. Psychology has trumped theology, as it were. The problem with self-defined truth, self-referential truth, defining love for your own self, is that, and there's just a little problem, it ignores the reality of God. So that's a huge problem. It ignores that he's our creator, and he's our redeemer, and he's our revealer. He has redeemed us. To focus so much on human freedom and self-actualization is to miss what God has done in history. He gave us the solution to the, the disease. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he defined love by giving Jesus. He gave his son to what? Die on the cross. So God defines love with a cross. The world defines love with two consenting adults can do whatever they do as long as they're not hurting one another. That comes from a Christless and crossless worldview. In 1937, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote prophetically about such a morality and such a uh, uh, murky spirituality. 
it's lo- it runs like this. And it has been masquerading as Christianity along for many years. A God without wrath brought a people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That is not good. That To throw out the law of God means we really have nothing except our own wisdom. God defines the love with a cross, not mutual selfishness, but with sacrifice. So that's, that's an error that's probably out there in the culture, not as much with us. We're not antinomians. We don't throw out the law of God. We know it has a place for us. But point three, some of us have grown comfortable with the law of God. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 1, Brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now, if you remember from Pastor Morrison's sermons, he's been talking to you about how the Roman church had two major ethnic groups in the church, the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, the Gentiles didn't grow up going to Sabbath school, but the Jewish Christians in the church did. They knew the law. They felt comfortable with the law. They had a high view of the law. They had confidence in the law. They quoted the scriptures. They knew the Torah. They had their Greek uh, copy of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. They were very familiar with the synagogue patterns of worship. They were as comfy in their jammies and bedtime slippers as they were with the law of God. Comfortable. Um, Now, do you have the the slide that they showed in the first service for the PowerPoint? Maybe not. Oh, yes, there it is. So this may seem completely random. Uh, if you look up here, you can see a picture of a, a disposable cup from a restaurant. It happens to be from Chipotle. I call that hipster Mexican food because I don't know how many Mexicans are really behind the restaurant. But anyway, they were uh, had a so – you can see that if you can read that, it says a bold – not proclamation, a porklamation that in 2000, they started sourcing their pork from responsibly raised pigs. Now, isn't that a comfort? So I, I took my daughter, Lydia, to had a, a daddy-daughter date Friday night, and I was looking at this cup as I was about to dig into my carnitas, my burrito bowl. And uh, I noticed that they made three strong claims in this interesting piece of visual rhetoric, this marketing. Number one, that their pigs are 100% vegetarian diet. Isn't that comforting to know that those pigs are eating clean? They can never take that away from them. That's really good. They also have room to roam. They're, so they're treating the pigs humanely. They're not in some little pen where they can't even lay down and go to sleep. No, these pigs get to run and flop in the mud and do what pigs are supposed to do. They can move around and oink and squeak and, and uh, be selfish at the feed slop. And then the other, other way they're raising responsible uh, pigs is that there's no animal cruelty. See the claim there? No animal cruelty. I was putting this... This, this nice big forkful of carnitas in my mouth when I realized there's a problem. They didn't put this ad through the logic de- department. It didn't go through the, the logic detective. Because isn't there just a little bit of cruelty in their fabulous pig farms to have dead, murdered pigs so that I can have carnitas? Yes. Well, why am I bringing this out? Is It's easy to forget that sometimes our best is not good enough. When we get comfortable with the law, when we get comfortable with our religiosity, we get comfortable with the way we do Christianity, we don't realize sometimes our best is not good enough. So I thought that was really funny. It cracked me up. And I thought with a sermon on uh, 
the, the law, we need a little, little levity. And uh, it also made me think of an old movie, uh, first debuted in 1944, called Arsenic and Old Lace. Raise your hand if you've seen Arsenic and Old Red Lace. All right, there's more of you who have seen it than in the first service, and I've told them they needed to see it. If you haven't seen Arsenic and Old Lace, starring Cary Grant, it's hysterical. It's about a slightly dysfunctional family. Do you remember the, uh, the Gary uh, Grant characters in Mortimer? He had two elderly aunts, and they were such sweet people. They looked just like a lot of you, sweet church ladies. They were probably members of the, mis- the Women's Missionary Union, and, and uh, they did all type of charitable acts, and they liked to help lonely, uh, homeless elderly men. Do you remember how they helped those lonely, uh, elderly, homeless men? See, the name arsenic in the title should tell you. They poisoned these uh, these old tramps when we come to their house looking for work. And then they would say something like this. Oh, doesn't he look peaceful? And they, they were so sincere. And they were, look, only trying to help. But they didn't realize that sometimes their best is not good enough. That their peaceful rationalization was not really the right thing to do. They had become too comfortable with their law, their understanding of the way things worked. They didn't see that they were ruined by the law. So Dan Allender says, either we're redeeming or we're destroying. And the problem is when we can't tell the difference. And sometimes we get too comfortable with the law that we don't know. So when Paul says, there was a time that I was apart from the law... I was free from the law in uh, verse 8. Oh, no, excuse me, verse 9. I was once alive, apart from the law. Does it ever occur to you, when was he talking about being free from the law? Wasn't Paul raised in a, a devout Jewish home? Wasn't he raised to be a Pharisee? Didn't he, wasn't he raised to know Hebrew from his mother's lap? If, if, if he was being trained up for the Sanhedrin, he probably had memorized the, the Old Testament the first five books of the Old Testament, by the time he was a young man, how could he not know the law? How could he uh, feel like he lived apart from the law? It's because he was comfortable with the law and the law hadn't hit home yet. I'll give you another example of someone who was raised in their his own religiosity. The rich young ruler in Mark 10, 17 through 27 Man comes up, he was a wealthy man. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He says, you know the commandment, you shall not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not, uh, you should honor your father and mother. Teacher, he says, I have kept all these since I was a boy. He felt comfortable in the law. And Jesus said this, or it says of Jesus, he looked at him intently and he loved him. And then he's told him the truth. One thing you like, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So Paul has been talking about suddenly learning what real coveting is. This rich man is an example of someone who came up against Jesus and saw that though he had great wealth, the great wealth had him. 
the covetous heart, this heart of flesh. It's dangerous to become comfortable in the law. It had him. He did not see his plight. He was ignorant of the law's danger. So in the point four, see how the law ruins us, but how Christ is our only hope. So what, is, what does Paul say? Does he say that the, that the law itself caused him to sin? No, he says, essentially, that because of who he is, of the flesh, sin has to weigh to work with the flesh with the law to produce all kinds of sin and to slay him, to kill him. And I think what he means is that one day this all came home to Paul. Like it came home to the rich young ruler. And has it come home to you? The law should be as, about as comfortable as a chair covered with barbed wire. That's the reality check. Because sin uses what is good to bring about our death and condemnation. Not only is sometimes our best not good enough. But oftentimes, most of what we do, there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong with almost everything we do. And this, that we need to be snapped out of our, our self-delusion. There's biblical vocabulary here that's very important. Law means God's ways. The next vocabulary word is to covet. The word in the Greek, epithumia, is also the word we translate as lust. And so, biblically speaking, we all have a lust problem here today. We, in fact, have many different types of lusts. Notice the emphasis on plurality of the different things that draw our heart. It's not wrong to desire something, but when we turn a desire into a demand, a demand of other people, of of things, of God, we make an idol. And that idol destroys us because of our flesh. Because in our flesh, we can only want things that are of the flesh and that are of lusts. Lust, see, the flesh is all of us apart from any of God. Our frailty, our weakness, our folly, and our rebellion. We don't have to be taught that. We come by that naturally. This is what it is to be in our first nature. Uh, Apart from Christ, we are only flesh. Now, when we become a new creation, is the flesh totally taken away? No, but we have a new nature. We don't have two natures at the same time. So the NIV calls the word flesh uh, the sinful nature. Like we have the sinful nature and we have the nature of the spirit at the same time. And I don't think that's accurate. But I understand what they mean. It's an all-engulfing point of view to live for what's passing away and not for God and actually to reject God. That's what we get from the flesh. But we are not in that situation. We're actually some, some, some people in the flesh are very comfortable being in the flesh. For us, when the law comes home, we can be very miserable people. We can feel like a failure. We wonder, what good is the law when I feel like a failure? When I feel like I know I'm a new creation, but why do the same old things keep tripping me up for hard falls? What good is the law when I feel like a failure? Do Do you recall with deep regret and godly sorrow those moments When thick and heavy shame came home. When you knew the sinfulness. Not of sin in general. But your sin. Those moments of. Not when you're doing pretty good. But those moments of spectacular 
failure. You may have wondered why in the world we, we had the first reading with Psalm 143, where it ended with, Therefore my spirit faints within me, my heart within me is appalled. Dismayed, the New Living, New Living Translation says, I am losing all hope. I am paralyzed with fear. Why would that be our first reading of the day? Why do we need to be at that point? Why do we need to feel like a failure? When do you and I recognize our weakness, our failure, and our inability? What do we do with that? What do we do when we feel like, though we know we're a Christian, it feels like nothing has changed and we still have the old relationship with the law, not a new relationship with the law? There's four things I think will be helpful. Number one, know your flesh and expect the expected. Now, it'd be really fruitless for me to tell you to expect the unexpected. No one can un- expect the unexpected. That's only, you only hear that line in movies. It's because it's not a practical. You can't, you can't just expect the unexpected. But it's pretty wise to expect the expected. What, you, what should you expect from you and your flesh? Do you know your flesh? Do you know your patterns? Do you know your, what typically... Uh, the next passage in Romans will talk about the sin that dwells in so close with you, the indwelling sin. You just can't shake. Know your flesh. Expect the expected. Number two, use that to discover the idols driving your covetous desires, what you demand, your lusts. So like if you want um, fame, maybe you're wanting approval. It's the sin beneath the sin. It's the the idol beneath the, the presenting idol. If you want a Lamborghini, why do you want a fancy sports car? What does that tell you about your heart? That's the type of discovery you need to do with prayer through the Holy Spirit. Discover the idols driving your desires. And number three, know the sinfulness of your sin. It's not just knowing about the doctrine of sin, but knowing your own sin. Why is it good to feel like a failure? Because number four, then you can find your hope in your relationship with Christ. Otherwise, we're too much like deckhands on the Titanic. Moving around the deck chairs of the Titanic when it's about to sink. We're just rearranging the, the decoration on a sinking ship. We're trying to make cosmetic changes on our life, on our own, when we feel comfortable with the law of God and his demands on us. But when we see our abject failure, that's when we're motivated to turn to Jesus. That means we're turning from sin and turning to him. That's repentance. Run to Jesus and ask for his Holy Spirit. Now, when we do this, when we are realistic about knowing our flesh and expecting the expected, discovering the sins, the desires that drive our sin patterns, we can find our hope in Christ. And we come to a realistic peace about who we are. Look at Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Actually, you can't look at it unless you can turn really fast. So I'll just read it to you. There, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How should you walk? Number one, with all humility. Number two, with gentle meekness, meek before the Lord. Number three, with patient endurance. He's not just going to take problems away. He's going to help you endure them. And bearing 
with one another in love, because every one of your other brothers and sisters in Christ are also dealing with the flesh, feeling like at times, I am sold under sin in the flesh. And what does this humility give us? Humility in Christ means that we have humility without shame. Hebrews 4.16 says, Come boldly before the throne of grace when you get your act together. No, no, no. That's not what it says. Come boldly before the throne of grace in your time of need. Meaning when you're really messed up. Why? Because being humble before the Lord is not when he's going to humiliate you or shame you. It means he's going to accept you. So we can have humility without shame or humiliation. We can also have dignity without pride. Or self-delusion. What do I mean by this? The last passage we talked about last week was that you belong to Christ. You have been married to God. You've been brought up into the life of God. You are now a child of God. Then that's not pride or arrogance. It's who you are. It's dignity without pride. And this can give you confidence. Confidence for life. Confidence to know who you are. You are a saint. You belong to Christ. You struggle with the flesh. That gives you a biblical realism. Gives you confidence without unrealistic expectations that you'll never change or that you'll be perfect. Isn't that sometimes we, we fly from one extreme to the other emotionally? I've got to be perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And I'm proud of it. Then boom. I can never change. I blow it. This will never. No, it gives us confidence That we can expect our flesh to be the flesh, but we can expect our Savior to walk with us, who is meek and lowly, who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We we can have confidence free of unbiblical expectations of our life before we go to heaven and the kingdom. And this gives us peace because we can rest in Christ's work. He is our hope. His power is exerted toward us and his presence with us and to know that he loves us even when we struggle even when we stumble with our flesh can give us joy because we are known he can expect the expected and he knows he has a plan that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus not because of our character but because of his faithful character and this brings us back to last week's summary You belong to another. You have a new identity. You have a new supernatural way of life and you can bear fruit to God. So the law is not your end. Christ is the end of the law for those in Christ Jesus. And that will give you the hope you need to face the times when you struggle. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth and help it to transform us and help us to walk in your spirit in the way of the law that shows us the good life. Help us to walk with humility, dignity, and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.